Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, as recommended by Jerry Smith and Mike Snoonian of The Pod and the Pendulum, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about their 2017 film, The Endless. Um, I tweeted out when I started watching this that I was, I guess, predisposed to like this, or I was prepared to like it because of the opening title cards that start this film out. And if you need a reminder, there are two, one of which is from an unknown source, which says, friends tell each other how they feel with relative frequency. Siblings wait for a more convenient time, like their deathbeds. But then the other one, the one that I have permanently tattooed on my right forearm, From H.P. Lovecraft, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. It is the opening line to his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which he was um, basically explaining uh, or or hypothesizing, or it was an essay, but he was basically talking about why he writes um, horror fiction, which at the time was kind of more referred to as weird fiction, what's so effective about it, recommending other people's works and what's so effective about them, but basically just kind of it was his treatise, uh, if you will, on why he does what he does and why it is such an effective genre and mode of storytelling. So I was predisposed to like that. I have another podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, as I've talked about on here, which is just reviewing films based on Lovecraft stories. So that hit me in a sweet spot. I was kind of prepared to like that. And it also, it's, it's interesting because those two uh, title cards or those two quotes kind of cue us into basically the, I don't want to say the dichotomy, but the two threads that the film is going to follow and really the two threads that all their films have followed that I've covered on this podcast, which is all of their stuff except for one film, I believe, which came out last year. But it really deals with the, those those two things, what's interior and what's on the exterior, or kind of more specifically, what is being focused on inside, what is the core of the film, what is inside the, the characters that we are following, and what exists kind of on the periphery, on the physical periphery, on the emotional periphery, basically, but what is beyond these two, basically. And so it kind of clues us in into that early and kind of set me in in the in the the right mindset I think to watch this film I talked in the last two episodes the this idea of maybe not expecting or having the right expectations for the film or kind of or not thinking I was going to get one thing and getting something else and how that might have skewed my viewing experience a little bit this one but this beginning the film as it does with these two quotes kind of cued me into what I was expecting, though I also do have to say that this entire journey of watching these films from these two filmmakers may have been, I initially thought spoiled, spoiled is the wrong word, but may have been skewed a bit by starting with watching Spring. I really do wonder if if the order should have been, and I don't often question the 
the uh, chronology or the recommendations of the guests, but I really do wonder if it would have been better served if I did resolution, then the end list, and then wrapped it up with spring as sort of a kind of a, a journey that that uh, that starts in ambiguity, uncertainty, and kind of um, vagueness into more of a certainty when it came to fully realizing the world that the characters in their films are going to exist in and also the characters themselves. Um, Because Spring largely explains its universe. It's actually very clear in who the characters are, what they're dealing with, and then when it comes to the supernatural stuff, the otherness stuff, the weird fiction stuff, it lays out basically all you need to know. It doesn't explain everything. It lays it out in a very um, efficient and subtle way, piece by piece by piece, but by the end of it, you know exactly what is at stake for our two characters, what they are dealing with physically, how that affects them emotionally, and basically what is at stake for them and for us. Resolution, stepping back to their film debut, their feature film debut, was pretty (laughs) ambiguous. Why do I have such trouble with that word, ambiguous? Or it kept things vague um, sort of for the purpose of commenting on its genre or on this meta narrative it was trying to tell you. I mean, um, basically, by withholding information, it, it they Benson and Moorhead were kind of in control of what you got to see or what you had to know, and only that you had to know it for the purposes of deconstructing it or reevaluating it in the scope of, of basically the genre that they were making it. The endless leaves a lot more to the imagination in in the sense of, well, I'll be upfront with, with all of you. I'm still grappling with how I feel about their uh, Benson and Moorhead's approach to telling this story. And basically what I mean by that is we, <clears throat> in this film, revisit the, the same world or the same universe that they set up in Resolution, um, And by revisiting that world, it enables them as filmmakers and us as an audience to explore, for lack of a better term, the mythology of it or the supernatural elements of it or I guess you could say the rules of it. Um, In Resolution, we only focused on one bubble within that world. As, as we find out here in The Endless, it's, it's just kind of one loop, one story that, these, that those two characters, Chris and Mike, were reliving. We only focus on one of them, and we see one arc until we get to the end, and we see that what, whatever entity is in control of that arc or that story doesn't like the way that it is ending and chooses to end it on its own terms. In the endless, we learn a bit, a bit more about not even that entity, but we learn a bit more about its effects in this physical space, this world around where our characters Justin and Aaron go, but also how it, but also its effects and its consequences on other people, on other people in this cult or this group, if you will, and that that manifests in such a way where. Everyone is reliving 
their lives or everyone is kind of stuck in a loop. It's just a matter of depending on who they are and what they've done, the loops are could be longer or they could be shorter. Um, we have Justin and Aaron, who we find out are going to be eventually caught in a loop, which is going to, to last a few days, basically, a couple days. Um, we have that very angry guy in the shed who um, seems like he's caught in a loop that's lasting a few hours. Um, we have the group or the cult itself that seems like their loop is lasting much longer, maybe a few years, I get the, the impression. And then, of course, there's that guy in the tent that Aaron stumbles upon who his loop seems to be just a few seconds. So we see that there are that this intimate bubble that we've seen Chris and Mike in in the resolution, those are existing all over the place, but they are having different effects on different people for different reasons. So we, we learn a bit more about that, but we are no closer in this film to learning the the why or the how. We learn a lot more about the what, what is happening, but we don't learn really any more about why it's happening or how it's happening. And, but as I said, I have to reiterate, I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about this because on the, on the one hand, um, by not delving too deeply into this, by not exploring um, those the minutia of those rules and maybe what is this entity, where did it come from, why does it do this thing, it allows us to instead focus more on the story of Justin and Aaron, um, who they are as characters, their relationship to each other, their relationship to these people that they, they meet again when they come back to this compound, and their emotions and their journey um, emotionally and spiritually, if you will. Um, so by not focusing on those details, by leaving that supernatural stuff on the periphery, we can focus more on, on them, on these two characters and what they are going through, basically. Um, there is a danger, of course, in, um, I mean, I, I was thinking when I was watching this about um, Hellboy and Men in Black, which are not equivalencies in the, in the sense of quality or tone or anything, but just in the sense of they had initial installments um, that I uh, quite enjoyed. Hellboy is one of my favorite movies. And those films were successful enough to get a sequel. And in the sequel, you get more budget and you get more scope and you explore more of the more of this universe of these worlds. Um, and so we get more characters, we get more villains, we get more locations. And <clears throat> in a way, it there's almost sort of a, a spoiling, if you will, because I'm kind of thinking of like, your, your imagination is sometimes, or a lot of times, even more effective or, or will be more satisfying to you than what people are showing you, than the vision that people lay out and say, this is what this is instead of what could it be and that is a Lovecraftian element I mean in in some of his short stories he certainly d describes some of the the creatures or the entities from space or from these other dimensions um, but a lot of times he instead errs on the side of you experiencing those entities or what is on the other side of a reality or in another dimension just by how extreme the reactions are of the people that experience it themselves. So you often, you know, in those stories, you often have a character who is, um, who has gone insane or who has killed themselves and sort of left a record of like, um, let me tell you my tale before I plummet out this window so that you can understand why I'm choosing to plummet out this window. And we don't, 
touch the void, we just see the reaction of the person who did touch the void, basically. So this idea of leaving it ambiguous is a Lovecraftian element, but at the same time, if we are going to revisit this universe, if they are making a deliberate effort to go back to this world where there is this supernatural thing in control of people's fate and destiny, I... I personally kind of want to know a bit more about the why. Um, but then at the same time, like I just said, but learning about the why could be not satisfying or could be spoiling it. So like I said, I haven't really fully decided how I feel about that approach. Like on the one hand, I want it. On the one hand, I don't want it. I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. Um, so it, it's... It's... It, it's... it's I, this this film is very effective in many ways, but that element sort of um, is still at this point kind of keeping me back from thinking that it's a great film, if that makes any sense. Like, like it's a film that I, I really appreciate, and there's a lot of things that I like about it, but as a whole, it's not coming together to be as effective for me. Um, but I also do have to applaud how they, uh, how Benson and Moore had revisit, as I said, the same universe or the, the same device of a time loop, if you will, of something controlling the story or the narrative that these characters are living while those characters are trying to break free of it. I appreciate them revisiting that, but expanding its thematic application of it. Um, if you recall from my episode on Resolution, I talked about how this entity having control over everything and these genre tropes being thrown in there were done um, for the purpose of, of parody uh, of, of those tropes, basically. Um, and in this movie, uh, and so that, that's kind of a, a, I don't want to say an intimate scope, but it's a smaller scope, um, as, as small of a scope as it can be to, I guess, critique an entire genre, if you will. But um, it, 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 it didn't speak to existentialism necessarily or per se which is once again something that Lovecraft did a whole lot but it, it spoke instead to just kind of um, um, artistic expressions basically and, 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 and how those things are tired and how those things can be um, deconstructed basically but in this movie it takes the same universe and the same device of a force having control over your destiny over your arc and expands it and applies it instead to this idea of the choices we make, questioning whether we do actually make them or not, or whether it's just impulses or compulsions that influence our decisions. Or basically that idea of, are we in control of our own life? Are we in control of the choices we make, or do the choices make us who we are, basically? Um, I was reminded of uh, of a quote that I've said a couple times um, in the last few weeks, uh, most uh, recently watching <laughs> Battlestar Galactica, in the in this idea, and this this was given to me by um, um, a priest a long time ago. But this idea of hurt people hurt people, and basically that idea of hurt or damage or 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 some type of unsettling within someone will perpetuate and will influence other people if it is not taken care of. Um, and I was thinking about that when it came to this movie because of that way that, especially at the end when 
Aaron and Justin are trying to escape, and Aaron is kind of basically talking about, you know, you've always, he, basically he says to the effect, like, you've always been an asshole, you've always been in control, I've always kind of hated this um, about you. Um, and once again, getting back to that quote about, you know, the siblings and, and friends and, and that kind of thing. But this idea that Aaron is then explicitly kind of saying what we've been feeling the whole film, what has been building through the whole film, that, like, you have been in control of my life. You are the reason that we left this group to begin with. You are the reason that we are now have this shabby existence of kind of being um, broke with no friends and cleaning other people's apartments, basically. You have always been in control of the way that my life has gone, and I've just wanted to have some semblance uh, or, or some say in how my life is going to unfold. You know, that that's something that Aaron's realizing as they spend more and more time within this group. It's like, this is where he wants to be. He wants to be in control of his ho- of his own life. And so that entity that is controlling their narrative, that is controlling their story, that is in charge, in charge, but it is instituting these loops and these repetitions is not just this unseen force, but also his brother, also this guy who has dictated every step of his life, beginning with leaving the group or the cult, and has kind of imposed his will every step of the way, even up until the very end, until he says, you know what, if this makes you happy, we're going to be repeating this over and over again, but I'd rather be repeating this happy with you than just be than have us both be miserable basically when he relinquishes that control when he allows his brother to make those choices for himself and at the end when he rests his head against the side of the car when they're driving and the gaslight is on he just says you know what you take care of it and just this idea of like you know what solve it I'm not going to do anymore I am I am not going to control how you approach anything anymore um, so it's it's an interesting it, it's admirable and interesting how they did that how they they thought of like okay we got this repetition thing here what can we do with it that is going to speak to larger themes and it's something that I find very interesting about this it's it's great about that's what's great about Groundhog Day that's what's great about the Edge of Tomorrow that's what's great about these films that use this device of repeating the same story what that looks like and what that implies when it comes to basically existentialism and, and basically how your life is playing out. Um, I want to read a, a, a bit of a, a snippet from the quote, uh, a snippet from the quote, um, a snippet or a quote um, of the review uh, of The Illness written by Matt Zoller Seitz that I will link to on the Facebook page. It's, it's from RogerEpert.com. <clears throat> that speaks to what I think the film does really well, basically. Um He says, this story is filled with circles and circles within circles, or maybe we should call them saucer shapes. There's an overcast sky with a hole punched through the clouds, round wind chimes clinking in the breeze, wooden benches arranged around a campfire. Circles are embedded into the score itself. House of the Rising Sun is built around a series of circular chord patterns, and the lyrics are about a gambler's son who escaped an abusive childhood, but seems determined to repeat his father's sins by choice. Mirrors are as important, too. There are actual mirrors in the film, mirrored compositions, characters whose fates or personalities seem to mirror each other, and moments where the universe seems to tear a hole in itself to show us what's on the other side. So this idea of repetition, of, of, of mirroring, of showing our lives back to ourselves, it's all 
it's all in here and it's all very interesting. Um, and I really appreciate what they're doing with it. But I know, once again, I still have this curiosity of like, but I want to know more about this thing. What is this thing doing? But I'm, I, I can certainly understand if someone's response to that would be, well, that's, that's not what's important. You're losing focus. That's not, that's not the focus. That's not the important part of this film. And I, and I get that. So once again, like I said, I'm grappling with it. I'm of two minds about it. I feel one way, but I also feel another way. Those two things exist at the same time. But I also did say that there are things about this thing, things about this thing. <laughs> there are things about this movie that I do really like, um, including this is probably um, overall the strongest performances of, of all the films that I've watched from them so far, which is in- interesting because the two leads are, of course, played by the writer and writer directors. Um, there are some moments when they go a little bit overboard or, or their, their response is a little bit not right. As a group, everyone just seems really kind of keyed in to, to the story, um, to the characters, who they are. There's a lot of um, little banter and little conversations and comments where you really are clued in that the characters and the actors are clued into who their characters are, who their, what their relationships are to each other, which are really interesting. And also just technically, as a, as a piece of filmmaking, there are parts about this I love, including um, the editing um, in how scenes are... Uh, cut from real quickly or kind of emphasizing this juxtaposition between moods, between tones, between night, between day, between uh, drama and comedy and just how these, it's almost as though it, it implies or, or, or subtly, subconsciously re-emphasizes this idea of worlds pushing against uh, pushing up against each other. Um, there's that uh, a shot from the film where I believe it's when Justin and Aaron are, are have visited the the trailer of the esoteric European guy from from Resolution, um, where you kind of see these physical bubbles kind of all around the valley where they are basically, and, and just that idea of these worlds all next to each other, bumping up against each other. We feel that in the editing as well, and just that suddenness of you know snapping from one scene to the next, from night to day, from a scream to silence to a laugh to meditation, if you will, um, emphasizes that idea of the suddenness of these worlds repeating. I mean, that angry guy from the shed who is kind of cluing Justin into what is happening and what he has to do to escape it, just think of him, you know, him continuously killing himself to try and get out of this loop, basically, and how sudden it is at one moment he's alive the next moment he's or or you know the one moment he's hanging the next moment he's back on the dirt road or at one moment he's got a gun to his head the next moment he's back in the shed and just this idea of the suddenness of the repetition and the almost violence of of that shift basically i I mean that that emphasizes once again this entity that where it's kind of said that like if it doesn't like the ending, it doesn't like the loop. It will end your life for you to have you start it again. And just how violent and how jarring that must be. Um, I also have to say that the cinematography is interesting to me. This is something that I noticed in Spring. Not so much in Resolution because of the technology of, of cameras at the time. But in Spring and in The Endless, I'm noticing where the way that they shoot it seems a little bit... <clears throat> a little bit desaturated. Um, 
it, it has a feel to me, if anyone knows anything technically about cameras or filmmaking, I, I almost kind of get this sense that they shot the film in log. And if you're not really familiar with it, to, to put it simply, like, log is a, is a kind of a, a format you can shoot your video in, which is desaturated uh, purposely so that it gives you more versatility in color correction later on in post-production. Um, but it seems like they shot it in log and touched up a little bit, but not a lot. So they, they're not trying to make colors pop. You know, there, there's no real... There's no real moments or shots that I can remember where the sky is super bright blue or the trees are just this vibrant green or even clothing. You know, nothing sticks out like a red or orange shirt or something like that. Um, like they've added a bit of correction to it, but not a whole lot. And utilizing that look kind of subtly to me keys me into this idea of a kind of an old, not old photograph but like a photograph that's at this point let's say 10 or so years old that's maybe been outside a little bit or just kind of um stuck inside of a photo album in like not ideal temperature conditions so that it's faded a little bit not not like a you know a photograph from the 50s or the 40s where like the color has been well not the 40s and 50s maybe that's too far back but just but not one that's decades old where the color has been really drained and you get the sense that it's ancient but more just it's a photo which its best days are behind it, but it's not a forgotten memory yet. And, and, and to me, that sort of um, re-emphasized this idea of, of this theme of repetition. If we are in, or if our characters are in these worlds where they're constantly repeating, they're living the same story, they're reliving the same lives, but it's getting tired, it's getting old, it's not inspired, their, their hearts aren't in it anymore. And when you kind of have that idea of this old picture, you know, you can revisit that memory, you can revisit this physical thing by holding it in your hand and looking at it, but it's not, but you're, you're not at that moment anymore, you're not in that moment anymore, you're not feeling the same things that you were feeling when that picture was being taken you don't necessarily look the same way that you did when that picture was being taken. You are not in the same physical space as you were when that picture was being taken. And just this idea of it, this thing is the same, but it's also different at the same time. Um, but then, again, like I said, I, I keep coming back to this idea of the rules of this universe and what are they. And maybe I missed it. Maybe it, it was explained explicitly and I just, I didn't pick up on it or I was distracted by something else. If that's the case, I certainly want someone to let me know. Um, but it just, once again, what are the rules? And I don't need the minutia, but I just need to know where the differences come in. So, so for instance, um, how and why, well, I guess I know the how. I mean, they, they went into this physical space, but... How and why did Chris get stuck? So, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they are stuck in a seven-day loop because it's seven days uh, is, is how long their story played out in resolution. Um, but then was it, you know, if, if, if Mike had physically taken Chris, maybe I'm getting the names mixed up, it's been a little bit, but, but if, if, you know, if Mike had taken Chris, like, into the truck in the sixth day and left, would that have 
broken the, the pattern? Does it become a time loop just by entering it in the sense of is fate robbed from the person just by entering into a, a physical space? But that can't be the case because we see with Justin and, and Aaron that they are able to actually physically get out of the loop. Um, and, and, and why are some of the loops longer than others? I mean, there's that guy in the tent, which is in a loop of, what, four or five seconds? Why is his loop so short? Why, you know, how does it get from a few seconds to for this one guy to seven days for, for Chris and, and Mike? Uh, you could say that it has something to do with the fact that, like, well, that, you know, it, it took a seven-day arc for Chris and Mike to arrive at a point that the entity didn't like, so the entity reset it itself, and so they now have to relive that. But then there's a guy in a tent who's only living a few seconds at a time. What is it about his loop that the entity didn't like in just a few seconds? Now, I, I'm, 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 even now that I'm saying that, I'm thinking there he's, he's partaking in an action which we are not seeing on screen, but seems rather violent. So maybe his arc is so short because he is just popping up killing himself a few seconds later, and then that is resetting his loop. So maybe he's doing that to himself. But, it, but once again, that's the fact that I am questioning that now means it, it, it wasn't sufficiently kind of explained um, to begin with. And, and, and I only bring up the idea of the rules kind of being clearer. For, well, I guess for two reasons. One, once again, this is me. I am kind of curious. I would like to know that. But then also, if I found myself kind of near the end not feeling, I don't want to say I didn't feel the need for Justin and Aaron to rush to try and race or, or outrace this, you know, this kind of thing resetting their, their, their lives or their world for them. On paper, I understood why they were doing it. I just, by not really understanding the details of it, I, I, I found myself kind of, there, there was then sort of a cloud over this end rush, which is supposed to be so exciting and so thrilling, and I was supposed to be so into it, but I just kept thinking like, okay, but I, I don't understand how they are able to physically escape it in this short time, but other people aren't. And, and maybe you could say, maybe you could respond that one of the things I talked about in Resolution was how their actual resolution of that story didn't seem satisfying to me on purpose because that's that was the filmmakers playing with the theme but this one did seem satisfying and so that's enough of a thing where the meta kind of answers the question of like well it is satisfying so that's why they're able to escape because it is a good story um these questions are ones that kind of hold me back from fully really getting invested in this film, but those are questions that maybe for you, you really love, you really appreciate it, you love the fact that everything is not handed to you, and if that's the case, then I fully understand that, I can't begrudge you for it, I hope that you do not begrudge me for just wanting a little bit more clarity, but, um, I mean, these, overall, these three films were, uh, I was really happy to watch them, I was really glad to be exposed to the work of these two guys, um, they're doing some really interesting stuff uh, that, you know, Jerry, Mike, and I kind of talked about this idea of um, filmmakers working within the confines of a, of a budget, and um, if they had unlimited budget, what would that look like? And, and just how something is, is probably lost by just kind of 
having carte blanche uh, to do whatever you want, basically. Um, and with these guys, I can really see them working well within budget confines. With like, you know, they they have ideas which work within certain constraints, and I think they work really well. And it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, once again, getting back to Lovecraft, I was thinking. Um, if Richard Stanley hadn't beaten them to the punch, I could see these guys making a really cool version of The Color Out of Space. I mean, uh, there's, there are even somewhat kind of elements of that story within this film already, so I could see them doing that really well. I really wouldn't want them to do, you know, something something with a huge monster, you know, something out of the Cthulhu mythos or, or, or something that was like, you know, the, the dreams in the witch house or the rats in the walls, but just something which is kind of psychedelic and bizarre like that I could have seen them doing that really well but uh, Richard Stanley beat them to the punch and also his version is is quite effective as well so I, I can't be angry about that either but um, that's it for Benson and Moorhead that's not obviously it for the month of June because as of recording and posting this is July and I apologize for the timeline it has been a, a few weeks in which my 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 routine has been off, so my uh, publishing schedule has been off as well. But I hope to be kind of back to everything um, next week. Um, next week, of course, is not just a new month, but a new guest, a new theme. Which, surprise, surprise, I don't fully have locked down yet. Um, I have a few things in the works. Um, I hope to have them settled in the next few days, so please be sure to pay attention to the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page to get keyed into what will be my theme for next month and who will, well, I guess technically for this month, and who will be the guest joining me to talk about that aforementioned theme. So if you have any comments, questions, concerns, I don't know, um, always easy to get in touch with me. Just email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Um, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly by going to battleshipretention.com and finding I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop down menu, or go to I Do Movies Badly.podbean.com. Oh, and of course, another shame. Can you do a shameless self plug when, by definition of, of doing a podcast on your own, you are already self plugging? I don't know. But another shameless self-plug since I've been talking about Lovecraft. Once again, I want to um, refer you to my other podcast, The Cast of Cthulhu, that I do with James McCormick, in which we review the cinematic adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft um, in June and slash July. Once again, scheduling, yada, yada, yada. We were covering some adaptations of Lovecraft's short story, Cool Air, which involved um, a review of the 2006 film Cool Air done by Albert Pyun of... Um, uh, cyborg fame, quote-unquote. Um, also, you may know him as the guy that directed the 1990 version of Captain America. Um, and recently, just today, I've published an episode for the 2007 film Chill. Um, and, uh, and also, in between that, we had a, a really interesting conversation with two British filmmakers, Gav Chucky Steele and Thomas Campbell, um, about their short Beyond that they made and just also their their filmmaking journey in general, which is really, really cool. So be sure to check that out as well. Um, Cast Cthulhu is uh, our handle on Twitter, and you can go to castofcthulhu.podbean.com to catch up on episodes of that. So um, forgot to mention, the uh, if you do want to revisit, uh, get it, because it's like loops. Yeah, forget it. Um, uh, if you want to revisit The Endless, it's free to stream on Netflix and uh, Hoopla. Otherwise, you can rent or purchase on Amazon, Google Play, 
Vudu, iTunes, YouTube, Fandango now, the Microsoft Store, and Redbox. But that does it for The Endless. That does it for Benson and Moorhead. Be sure to tune in next week. I will have a new guest and a new theme, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.